Hey everyone, welcome to Ben Better, How About You? I'm your host, Katie Nara, and I've suffered from depression nearly my entire life. It sucks. This is a podcast that focuses on mental health, broken down in a relatable way, and told through personal experiences. P.S. I'm not a doctor, but each week my guests and I will cover everything from recognizing symptoms of anxiety and depression to providing accessible tips, tools, and resources that support mental wellness. So get your weekly prescription with me. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Ben Better, How About You? I'm your host, Katie Nara, and today we have Poppy Jamie joining us. Mental health activist Poppy Jamie is an entrepreneur, TV host, breathwork instructor, wellness journalist, and founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect, as well as the Not Perfect podcast. UK born and based, Jamie kicked off her career while studying at the London School of Economics when she became the youngest television host at ITN. Poppy delivered the TED Talk Addicted to Likes in 2016, which focused on the harmful effect social media has on our mental health. In 2021, beauty brand Erno Laszlo named Jamie its first ever global wellness advisor. Her first book, Happy Not Perfect was released earlier this month. Welcome, Poppy. How are you? Oh, I'm really well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So nice to see you. And did I say that right, that brand? Yeah, Anna Laszlo. He's so okay. he's a really fascinating um, character, actually. He was born, obviously, in the 19... in 1900. And in 1929, he was Marilyn Monroe's dermatologist. And so- Oh my gosh, I had no idea. Yeah, he was one of the first ever dermatologists to connect the mind and skin. So when he gave Marilyn um, her skin prescription and her kind of skincare routine, he would always include mindfulness within it. So he said, right, you have to go for a walk once you've done your morning um, cleansing and moisturizing. And it's just so fascinating that nearly a hundred years have gone by and we're just realizing how important the mind is in terms of you know our skin health. That is really cool. I mean, I know that brand has been around forever and I feel like I have the, the solve or whatever the, the really like great for, I've really dry skin and I had no idea that that was the history of it, that that was Marilyn Monroe's dermatologist. Yeah. So you were just named this year, right? Was this this year? Yeah. So we, so I met the, um, I met the CEO who has been Obviously, Dr. Erna Laszlo's died now, but he was fascinated really about what were the formulations used 100 years ago because they were so they were such pioneers at the pioneers at the time, and some of the formulations haven't changed because they were so good in the 1930s, and so they they were using charcoal before anybody even knew the benefits of charcoal, and um, and also he he was he basically was one of the founders of this field called um, psychocosmetology. So psychocosmetology, like the name, is psycho in terms of the mind and cosmetology, like cosmetics, a beauty. So what, what is the psychology of beauty? How does your mental health affect kind of how you look? And as we know, like on, on a bad day, you know, after being really stressed, if, if, any, if anyone's like me, I mean, I'm like so puffy. You can just tell I haven't really slept, that kind of thing. So um, it's really interesting, I guess, like the philosophy. And I, I guess I think we all appreciate these days, people that are just, that have a message rather than just trying to shove us products. Yeah. 
No, absolutely. No, I look like I died if I'm like not feeling well. <laughs> or like, oh, you were buried in a grave and now you've come out to go grocery shop. That's so interesting. Wow. I had no idea that, and that's true. Like now, a hundred years later, that's such a thing. Like, what's the story behind your brand? What does it mean? You have to be eco-friendly and, you know, sustainable. And it's taken us this long to get there. Well, as I said earlier, I've been on like a poppy purge, um, which has been really exciting. I, I did your um, app yesterday, like up to lesson seven or through oh, lesson wow. seven. Yeah, it's and I've been reading the book. And so, and I also tried to find the video you talked about with Jude Law, but I did not find when you fall. I only found the interview. That's hilarious. That's so, oh, you just, yeah. The, I didn't find that, is the fall not on? Can we no, not the find fall, the fall? Basically, for everyone who's listening. <laughs> so I used to be called it's a great Bridget story. Jones for a reason, because in all my TV career, everything would go wrong as I, as we were just chatting before this podcast. And um, this one particular interview, it was like the biggest one that I that I was ever asked to do. And I was like, must've been 20 or 21 at the time. So I was asked to interview Jude Law, uh, who we all know is like very good looking. And <laughs> I was just having like, just such a fangirl moment and also trying to be professional at the same time, which was like difficult. So when I walked into this room, I was, you know, I got introduced as Poppy, she's here to interview you. And he thought I was a fan because I was just so overexcited, but that's just my personality. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so nice to meet you. And then when I shook his hand and fell and I went to sit back down on the seat, obviously, you know, start this professional inverted commas interview, I completely missed the seat and went flying head first, literally scraping his crotch like into the floor. And I was wearing this tiny skirt um and it, I was really trying to like live out Veronica Corningstone you know from Anchorman oh yes yes, yeah. yes yes and there I am like lying on the floor this like skirt riding up half a butt cheek out um and I just remember being like oh, obviously I'm dreaming like this would never happen in real life I remember just opening my eyes and like opening my eyes a to the floor or to like Jude Law's very shiny shoes or to his crotch or to his face slightly higher and I'm like Oh my God, I'm, 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 I'm going to be fired. This is awful. And, um, and so what do you do? You either kind of break down to hysterical tears because your career's over what I thought it was over um, or you just start laughing. And so I kind of chose the latter and could not stop laughing. So the video, it was the TV producers at the time were like, no, we can't, we can't show this false. We just got to show. So this video then went viral of me not being able to get it together afterwards. Yeah. And you, you, you know, your makeup didn't look that bad. I know in the book, you really describe your makeup as looking really bad, but I just want everyone to know it didn't look that bad. Maybe the blush was a little intense, but it wasn't that bad. Wasn't oh, that's bad. so funny. <laughs> it was such a good story because it's true. Like, I think in so many times in our lives, like you build up these moments of like, this is make or break it. And then looking back, you realize that wasn't make or break it. You probably learned a lot. Like, just to laugh it's so, so wrong it's so true and I do think you need a lot of data on yourself because every experience you're just creating more data on yourself like oh how do I react in this type of situation but when you're younger you have such little data I think this is why yeah. wisdom is often earned you know 
through experience you can't really buy a wise brain um because <laughs> we wish. You go through all these different scenarios and then you can say to yourself oh no no, no I know that's going to be okay I've done that before but this was kind of the beginning of my career and I generally thought one mistake and I was going to be out forever and um but yes I think it, this is what's so funny about emotions I guess is that and I and I'm sure there's, there's, there's maybe people listening, it's probably a bit of a strange example, but you know, if you've ever gone to a funeral and you just want to laugh, like you don't know where it's like giggles are coming from. You just want to kind of absolutely just have church giggles. And, mm-hmm. um, and it is, it's just kind of, I think it's just like, you know, we sometimes just want to like release <laughs> and you just don't know how the emotion's going to come out. It's like nerve, almost like nervous energy. Yeah. That's very much me. One of the things I found most interesting that I wanted to um, talk to you about, I mean, there were so many things that I feel like I, I learned and I still have more to learn to finish your book, but um, you talk about core beliefs and I'm curious of how important you think they are. Cause it was really interesting to read about the ones that you developed as a child. And that's what you talk about how most of our core, or I would think in general, we develop our core beliefs as a child, either subconsciously or consciously or through our parents or our surroundings. And um, what's funny in the past year, I realized my core beliefs are totally different than what I thought they were. Mm. And I think a lot of people even have like through the pandemic and this year we've been having, and it's fascinating how we can really not know ourselves yes at all yes um and sometimes the people that defy this the most are the most guilty like if you had told me a year and a half ago oh you don't know your core beliefs I'd be like that's not true of course I do so I'm curious as to um if you can just I know it's hard to answer it in a short amount of time but um how can someone find their true core beliefs and what are your core beliefs today so I think core, understanding your core beliefs is the greatest gift you can give yourself. And as the ancient Greeks said, you know, centuries ago, know thyself. And, and as you just said, I think it's a really important point that you just said, I thought I knew my core beliefs and they changed. And that's the thing I, the, uh, first of all, when I write this actually in the, in the chapter about the past, our past is so unreliable. Actually, the human mind cannot remember the past accurately. And um, and this is proven by uh, the CIA will ask someone a story twice. And if they repeat the story perfectly, they know they're lying. Be- because the human brain, the problem is we remember the gist and then we fill it with kind of, you know, how we're feeling. It's um, right. what we've gone through, different experiences. We kind of merge the two. And so this is why, you know, you think you believe something because of your past. And then actually you but maybe go through therapy. Maybe you're just having a great conversation with a friend. Maybe you read a book and you suddenly go, oh my God, actually, I really did believe that. And it's still with me now. So writing the book was this kind of incredible process where I was able to unlock I would say the three main core beliefs that have driven so much of my behavior because I'm my approach to mental health is always find out the why rather than kind of you know if you've got a cut like why did you get the cut rather than just like what can we put what plaster what band-aid can we put on the cut to make it not hurt and when we unlock our mind when we understand our why Uh, I think we have so much greater ability 
to change the way we feel. And my mother's a psychotherapist. So her entire teaching since I was eight years old, which was always, why, why? Like anxiety is just a symptom. Really, what is that like cause? And sometimes you don't know. You're like, I just feel anxious, but I don't know why. And in that moment, it's about pausing because you will always know the why. We are our greatest, like we are our greatest sources of wisdom. And I do think we live in a culture where it tells us that everybody else knows the answers to our problems, but we always know the answers. So taking time to explore your core beliefs is such a valuable exercise. So my three ones were, you know, I'm not good enough. And I think this is a very like common one for many people. And it, it's because, I think we we come into this world with zero fear. If you look at a baby, no baby says, oh, don't look at me, I'm self-conscious, I'm not having a good day. <laughs> no baby has fear, no baby um, is um, has prejudice. We learn our fear, we learn our beliefs. And I think as, as a child, because we're having to learn so much information, we create meaning to create safety. And our brain is, is wired to predict and protect. And so that's why our brain likes to predict situ situations. So for example, you know, mum tells us she's gonna be back in five minutes, but then she comes back in 10 minutes. You know, as a child, we don't have that part of the brain. It's not even built yet. Our prefrontal cortex isn't developed until we're 25. So we then emotionally go, oh, well, if she loved me more, she'd have been back in five minutes. So mm -hmm. we have created meaning from a meaningless situation because that's what the, the childlike brain does. And so we develop these negative kind of beliefs about ourselves. And then we and then we, you know, have a sibling that is doing really well, and suddenly we're like, oh, well. I'm not as good as them. And we start comparing ourselves. And comparison is, a, I think, is a, is a big way we start to learn about ourselves, but not always in a bad way. For example, uh, when you're little and you, you know, have a, a cup of hot tea, maybe, your brain goes, oh, did I prefer this cold or did I prefer this hot? We compare to gather data and information about ourselves so we know more for next time. But the problem there is when we compare, often we can then create a negative meaning about ourselves from something that's actually quite innocent. So I actually really like to, when we are going through and excavating our, our experiences to understand what we believe about ourselves really in our deep subconscious, which is running our day where 95% of our day research suggests that we, our subconscious mind is, is making decisions for us. Um, I think it's really important to remove the blame because I think when we look back and we're like, well, actually my mom, for example, you know, when I began this work, I remember going, you know, I'm a people pleaser because of my mum, and I have new boundaries because of her. And actually, I think we don't, that doesn't create a particularly empowering space for us to be in. I think that having the belief that everyone did the best they can with what they had, and we, knowing that our brain can always change for the rest of our life, can say, okay, what was my core beliefs without blame, without blame of like who potentially gave them to you, that just understanding yourself and then understanding that at any point in time, you can change them. It was like reading my own biography sometimes with your core beliefs. And because I've, I've felt the same way where, especially when you're talking about 
going to speak at Harvard and you ha- and you have like a, a choir or a, I don't know how and to MC, describe it. And then seeing a DJ, a DJ and a critic. He's like, you're terrible. No one cares. <laughs> yeah. But that's literally, it's funny how, and I, I think I would guess that women have that more than men, but where you just always feel like you're not good enough or there's someone constantly sort of bringing you down and how to get rid of that voice and put a different voice. And it really does take a lot of work. So much work. A li- by the yeah, way, a lifetime. It's not easy. No. And I also think, you know, sometimes Instagram, you know, you'll be scrolling and you'll kind of see some positive quote and it kind of makes you think, you know, you start even being guilty that you still have a negative inner critic. I, in the book, I call them, you know, your bitchy inner critic. And I name mine Regina after the Yeah, yeah, girl. yeah. From Mean Girls. <laughs> And, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, but I've done all this work on myself. I, 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 why am I not fixed? And I think just knowing that we are all in this lifelong process of A, getting to know our core beliefs, the fact that, you know, they were what created like the formation of our psyche and lower, just turning down the volume of them so they don't rule your life. They may still be with you, but befriending that inner critic in a way where you know when she's lying. And so rather than believing the lies, which I did for so many years and it ended up in like, you know, quite severe mental like illness. Um, when you have that kind of be able to, you know, when you're able to step outside and have that rational distance and be like, ah, oh, I know where this voice is coming from. And it's not true. I'm not my seven-year-old self. Actually, my current therapist has said, it's good to name the voices in your head sometimes. And you found that helpful naming your like bitchy one, Regina. I really did because, you know, thoughts are not facts. So as soon as you name them, you, I think, can differentiate what your soul is telling you and what your fearful inner critic who is, again, they're not a terrible part of you. They're only trying to protect you. So they think by screaming negative things at you actually may stop you from doing that talk or may stop you from doing it and thus keep you safe. But as we know, it doesn't keep us safe. It just keeps us small. So, um, so I find naming it helps you to differentiate between the voice of your soul that is totally loving and your intuition that's so much, you know, full of wisdom and then the bitch in a critic that is, you know, learning from past hurt. Or sometimes even something that my therapist once said, which I thought was helpful is because I have a tendency to worry so much what people are thinking or is, do they like me? Am I doing this right? Is even if they don't like that's their business, it's not yours. It, It just doesn't matter. Like it's, and maybe that's Regina's business. It's not, you know, Poppy's business, or it's not that it's, it's the thoughts aren't facts, like you said, which obviously can be as easier said than done. Cause when you're in the moment, you can get really caught up. And that's why I developed the flex method in the book, because step one is connection. And that is really, I, I wanted to have step one, which is okay, just embrace how you feel in that the power of a pause, because I was really reactive because I had this like MC DJ screaming insults at me. It meant that then if something went wrong or something in life confirmed Regina, 
I immediately would be so reactive and you know this would happen at work which is so unideal when <laughs> when like nobody wants someone reactive at work and you know even in you know my personal life too you 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 start overreacting to situations that don't require that response and you then go into a self-blame spiral because you're like oh I'm so sorry I shouldn't have reacted that way I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry and it's only because like the inner critic is being really really loud and it's causing you to be in your fight and flight and of course when we're in our fight and flight which is so normal of course we're not being wise of course we're not being our best selves but you know what life is tough (laughs) Yeah. And and that's why the power of the pause is so helpful. So you mentioned earlier that your mom is a a psychotherapist and I was curious of what was that like growing up? I know that you mentioned eight years old is when you, is that when you kind of started doing therapy with her or it was it ever really, was it her just helping you out? Or I, I would think it'd be really hard to talk to your mom as a therapist and my mom, I don't know. So I'm curious what that was like. And then the difference when you actually went to another therapist, I think it was Dr. Shona, Shana. Um, By the way, thank you so much for reading the book. It's like, it's so lovely. It's so like, it's so, I mean, the the book is- a great read. I'm not just saying that. It's, it's, I mean, it's really a good read. I mean, I'm fascinated by all this stuff. So, but yeah, but you're welcome. (laughs) Go on. It's so nice. Also, you're one of the first few people to have read it because it's only coming out in about a week. Yeah, I was so happy that they sent it to me. Like the, because I was like, I don't, I was like, I would love to read it before with this interview, you know? Because what, what's, what date does it come out? The 8th. This month, right? The 8th, okay. Yeah. So it's, um, so it's so nice to like talk to someone who's read it. It feels so special. So thank you for taking the time to do it. Um, So it was a really interesting childhood because to your point, your mom can tell you all these things that are good for you. And if you're not ready, there's one thing hearing and there's another thing listening. So if you're not ready to really listen to advice, and this is the same with friends, if you know, friends give you advice and they're like, you should do this, you should do this. If you're not ready for it, it doesn't matter what anyone says to you or how close they are to you or how much you respect them. You just have to be ready. And so it didn't take me really to, to a breakdown to even remember what she for so many years had tried to tell me like please poppy slow down please poppy slow down it doesn't matter why do you need everybody to like you they won't and not everybody will like you you know all those like mum things and um (laughs) but it was an interesting childhood because my father suffered from chronic mental illness so he had severe stress and anxiety and that was one of the reasons that my mom even trained as a psychotherapist because She was originally a physiotherapist, so she worked on the body. And I remember when we were really little and she said, every, you know, your issues are in your tissues. Every pain that is in the body comes from somewhere in the mind. And so through her practice, people would come to her with all all sorts of ailments. And then she would say, so when did that bad back start? And they would say, oh, when I went through that breakup or Mm -hmm. when I lost my job or, and actually they could really trace back to an emotional event, this physical pain that they were unwilling to process. And, um, and then from that, and she, you know, was, I guess she's such a sweet woman, but she really wanted to help my father who, you know, when you are going through chronic anxiety, like, you know, insomnia happens it, and also emotions are so contagious. So as a family, you can feel everything that your family is going through. 
And um, especially for someone like you who has, um, you know, empath qualities, I think some people can kind of turn it off, but when you're really sensitive, yes, like I think it's very difficult. Yes. And I think women on the whole are more sensitive on the spectrum. We are more sensitive. Um, And, and so it was, it was kind of really interesting because I guess 25 years ago, meditation wasn't cool or it wasn't any, anything really what anybody was doing. My father started a meditation practice and, um, and my mother, hence why I was so fascinated by Reiki. She trained as a Reiki healer. So and what I thought was so interesting about Reiki is um, when you Reiki animals, you really see the power of it. Because I think sometimes, um, you know, when you're Reiki a human being, even just giving yourself an hour out, you can feel more relaxed afterwards. So you're like, was it the Reiki? Did that really work? Because, you know, it's not like it's a massage. Often the Reiki practitioner is not even touching you. Um, and you can just feel the blood, you can feel the skin kind of warming up where the Reiki healing is happening. And so when we were little, she would do it to the animals. So we used to have this parrot that would be squawking all day long. Um, it's such an odd, it was like an odd pet. Parrots are really funny. Um, and my mother would, you know, bring her, you know, she would start raking the parrot and suddenly you would just see the parrot's eyes close and the parrot fall to sleep. And obviously wow. an animal isn't pretending. They're not going, oh, that was relaxing. They are just, yeah. just experiencing what is happening. And so I think we were, we were definitely shown how powerful the mind was, how powerful kind of, I guess, the unseen world was and just in terms of energy. And, um, and then I, I think through my schooling experience really was when that kind of, I'm so not good enough. I became uh, a massive workaholic, which again, when I was really going back through this for the book, I thought to myself, God, being addicted to work, that's odd. Uh, Because, you know, we assume addiction is kind of alcohol and drugs, but an addiction is any behavior outside of ourselves to fix an internal wound to the detriment of ourselves, And so at the age of 13, because we grew up with quite a lot of financial insecurity, I remember thinking to myself, I need to work so hard to get the most perfect grades because I'm gonna create stability for myself. I'm gonna create safety for myself. And, and so really I just became this complete workaholic and almost forgot all of this I guess like lovely teaching that my mother had given us as children because the need to create safety became more powerful and um and then that's what kind of led me to a chronic exhaustion and burnout um 12 years later and um because I just that need to create kind of that need to be enough that need to create safety just totally ruled all my behavior and thinking and then suddenly when the crash happened I was like oh god what was it my mum said to me and you know she's been incredibly incredibly helpful but I do think to your point sometimes it is nice to have an external therapist where you're you know it's so unrelated they don't know your friends they don't know like your family they are just a external therapist that's able to really help you understand our crazy mind right so how and how old were you just for people listening when the then the burnout happened 12 years later so I was as 26 
This was when you were in LA, correct? Yeah, this was in, okay. a, as in LA. I'd kind of set up. You sure it wasn't LA? Pardon? I'm just kidding. <laughs> so are you sure it wasn't just being in LA? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what? We laugh, but I do think that place in general, it's got loads of things to celebrate. And I don't want to be too damning of the place, but it, if, you know, if you, I came with so many insecurities, I came trying to prove myself. I came searching for external validation and that town and that the culture of that town is it's it there is such a strong hierarchy and it has changed because the loads of different industries have moved into the towns there's amazing tech scene now and art scene developing now but you know back when I'm 30 now so when I moved there was 23 so seven years ago it was kind of really the entertainment industry was the main industry and I remember just being like I am nobody I'm so insignificant and there and look this is a complete generalization and so I'm hesitant to like again like place blame on a place because at the end of the day, if I didn't have such insecurities, this place wouldn't trigger me. We were only triggered by our, the, you know, our internal wounds. So I just remember thinking, I think it accelerated and I think it intensified. And if I had an insecurity in England, it probably like times to about a hundred and was like, oh, you're even less significant and no one cares about you because you can't do anything for anybody. So... So I think it probably drove my like need to work harder even further. I was like, well, I've got to work even harder then for people to accept me. You know, I think, I think that is really true about LA. Like, I don't think you're, I think you're just stating facts because that's the other thing, like since again, with COVID one positive is where I've been traveling more or being, you know, going to different places and able to work remotely now in different areas. And you start to see like, oh, LA isn't, like how the rest of the United States is mm. or everything isn't about like what you can do for someone or mm. how famous they are, how, and it is exhausting. And I think, I think, um, especially if you're already experiencing or dealing with those insecurities, it can magnify them a hundred percent. Yeah. And also, you know, there is such a focus there on the external. And I think it's like, you know, what do you look like? What are you, what are you doing? How much money are you making? And it's, as as we know, there's such unfulfilling things to chase in, in our life. Yeah. Because, the, you know, the one thing my mother always used to say to us is always going to be someone prettier. There's always going to be someone more successful. There's always going to be someone better. But there is this, and I do think this is everywhere. We have, there is this quite toxic culture that celebrates crazy success and so the, the impact and then add in social media to this so like I have just moved to LA suddenly you whack an Instagram and I think everyone everyone is going through this right now and even when we we rationally can go I know Instagram is a lie I know people project the perfect life I know people use editing apps you know you can just go on there and f- just forget for a second and suddenly go oh my god everybody's Elsa's life looks so ideal. Everyone's banana bread is even better than mine. And it's it's really difficult to keep our sense of self-worth and self-value and and keep reminding ourselves that we are all such unique, wonderful humans and that the world needs uniqueness. And um, because it's, I think we do have a culture that is makes people think they've got to be the best at something. But 
why do we have to be the best at anything? I don't know, but I, again, I don't mean to be like finding all these positives in COVID, but again, when, when COVID happened, I found it refreshing where I was like, oh, doctors are being celebrated, not movie yeah. stars. And it really gave people that, especially people in LA that that's all they can rely on is like going to a party, going mm -hmm. here, going there, where it was like, oh no, you can't be the number one of this. Like you can't save a life in an ER, you can't. And, and it, yeah. it, it made me realize like, well, what do I want to do with my life? Like I'd actually really want to help people with their mental health and what I've gone through with struggle with my whole life. And it's, it sort of made, I think, gave everyone a reality check of what mattered. Yes. You know, and it doesn't mean it's not all going to go back to the same, you know, I mean, I think some people will, some people won't. It's still, um, you're right that LA, it can really magnify that, especially like your insecurities. Yeah. And also what really upsets me, I guess, is when I think about young people, you know, especially in their teenage years and you ask people what they want to be when they're older and they're like, I want to be famous or I want to, and for the first time ever, like young people are going, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a nurse because when you're young and this is the thing, all human beings, we all have three needs. We all want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want to be safe. So of course, young people are want to aspire to like those who look like they're accepted and that they're enough and look like they're safe. But I think COVID has done the most amazing job of us celebrating other careers that are also so brilliant and will also bring enoughness and safety and like acceptance. Yeah, that they're heroes. They're heroes, yeah. And I, I think it's amazing that we celebrate other heroes. But, you know, as I said, eight years ago, that was not the case at all. Like it was- um, No, it's like housewives or like are the heroes, like the, the reality housewives show or the, yeah. And that's, it is, it's, I definitely, I feel, I feel for anyone raising children, especially young girls today. Cause I do think, yes, like social media and all that can really make you like, it's a mind fuck for your self-worth a hundred percent. It's a mind fuck for your self-worth. And mm -hmm. also they have, and this is why, when I did that Ted talk in 2015 called addicted. To oh Life, yeah. I it, wanted that song here. If you can tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's what's so nuts to me is, um, What's so crazy is this was what nearly six years ago, five years ago, I can't remember the years. I did, you know, I started That's to so crazy realize. That was five years ago. Yeah, I started to realize like how we, how Instagram was mind fucking with our brain chemistry. It was, you know, shooting us dopamine spikes, which is so addictive. And mm -hmm. um, suddenly, you know, that human desire to be liked and accepted. And it really goes back to like evolutionary psychology. Like we are just tribal creatures. We want to feel protected by the tribe. And suddenly Instagram like had took these primal desires, which are nothing, it's nothing wrong with that. We're just human yeah. beings. And they then put a number by it. And it's like, oh my gosh, like, you suddenly post something and just because the algorithm doesn't show it to half your followers, you suddenly think the <laughs> photograph wasn't good enough. It's like, no, the algorithm has turned life into this one big global popularity contest. And also it's so unnatural for us to know this much about other people. As I said, we our brain hardwire has hardly changed. Our brain biology has hardly changed for centuries. 
and 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 so you know we were built to maybe know what about 30 people did in the tribe what was you know Lucy Liu of their cooking and what was so-and-so doing there and kind of you know we were natural gossipers because that's a bonding experience and then suddenly Instagram came along and you can know what your like friends brothers like girlfriends best friends dog owners like, you know, babysitter is doing or having for breakfast. Yeah. And it just adds to this increasing information overload, plus comparison, plus self-worth. Um, and I think it's just a melting pot for, and it's, I, I do attribute the rising of mental health issues to our experiences with technology. No, it's true. There's a doctor I work with who always says that no women more than men. And then a friend of mine is like, was like gay men too. I was like, okay. They normally feel worse after looking at Instagram, like statistically, it's yeah. not like sometimes, you know, but I, I tend to do a time limit of, okay, this is how much I'll spend. Cause you, that's just like you said, our nature, you know, and especially if people are not being real or showing like what's no one's like taking a photo of themselves. Like on the toilet or like, you know, food poisoning or, you know what I mean? Like a bad day or at the DMV. I mean, I think people have gotten maybe a little, a little bit better, but I think, um, especially for young kids, it's must be really hard. And that's why it's, you know, so much more difficult. I think being a kid and that also like the suicide rates have gone up and a lot of that can be directed towards that directly to that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's the pressure I think really comes down to the enormous pressure we are putting on ourselves to be excellent. And this idea of to be in inverted commas perfect. And I truly, this is why, you know, I write in the book a lot about having perfectionism, which I think is quite under discussed in general, because we're told as, you know, young girls be perfect. And then you're going to be desired. You're going to do well. You're going to have all your wishes like answered if you're perfect. But obviously there is a million definitions of perfect and also perfect doesn't exist because you keep going and put more pressure and more pressure and more pressure. And as I said, you know, why is burnout so high for women across all, all, all ages? Because again, you look at like hustle culture or inverted commas, hashtag girl boss, which is I think maybe one of the worst kind of like new age cultures that have arisen because now women are told to, be incredible in the workplace, also be incredible moms, also get up at 5 a.m. and make gluten-free pancakes. And like new age in a ways, I think like some versions of feminism has actually taken away the choice that, yeah. that women have to be many different versions of a woman if they want to be. You, who was it that it was on, it's, it's one of the people you're interviewing in the app that talked about, she compared the New York Times, like reading the New York Times to what used to be the amount of information you would get in a day? Yes. Um, I think it was Cal Newport, Newport um, who is, it, it, he's, a, he's a fascinating writer on the impact of information overload. It's called like infoxication. And the brain can't multitask. And so when, for example, we're doing a piece of work and let's say then somebody sends us a WhatsApp, as soon as we then switch our attention to the WhatsApp to answer that, we go back to the piece of work. What we've done is degraded our ability to concentrate on either. Because as I said, like the human brain 
cannot biologically multitask. So we multi-switch, which basically then makes us feel very overwhelmed very quickly because we can't process all the information. Information theory research found that the brain every second is being bombarded with 11 million pieces of information, but the conscious brain can only process 50. So as you can imagine, so this is why, you know, um, in the book, I talk about stiff thinking a lot. You know, we have so many blind spots, like as humans. And of course we do, because we're trying to select the best pieces of like the best 50 pieces of information to be able to, to be able to process. But imagine the 10 million, like 990, 50 pieces of information that we are unable to absorb, like what are we what are we missing out on and the you know if you then go to look at our um our confirmation negative bias research found that on our, on average we have 78 percent of our thoughts are usually negative because our brain is so much more wired to remember bad things that have happened because it thinks it's doing a good a good job by keeping us safe so out of those 50 pieces of information how much of that information is negative and so this is why i th- I'm fascinated and really what I give the book up to is like how do we train people's brains to choose a different like a different 50 like a different like different 50 pieces of information and how would our life look different if we focused on you know different things rather than being stuck in our fixed mindsets that were created by the past that may not necessarily be true because we can't remember the past in a totally accurate accurate way also our past was pretty much created by other people and what we absorbed from them and so we're now in this incredible situation where neuroscience research has brought us up to this present moment where it's saying, okay, we now have far more control over how we want to create the way we interpret life moving forward. That's so cool to think that you can retrain your mind, you know? And it's hard work. Even though it's easier said than done, because I feel like one of my questions, and I was like, you can't ask her that. I was like, how long do you think it takes to retrain someone's mind? But I feel like it's kind of a non-ending journey. Oh, never. That's the thing. I think sometimes mental health is, you know, portrayed as this, you know, game, like you complete and you're done. And it's like, if only that happened with our physical health, I would love to think that I could go for one run and be done forever. But, you know, it's this, like we are in this constant phase, you know, experience of, you know, moving our body to feel good. And our mind is exactly the same because we've been programmed a certain way doesn't mean our entire life needs to be like that. And um, there was such a, I remember one of the, one of the first times I realized this, um, my mom was treating this man in his seventies and um, he when he was little, when he was seven years old, he got laughed at in class because they asked him to spell his name and he just got so nervous and he didn't, he didn't spell it right. And then the class all started shouting, oh, you're so stupid. And then at 70 years old, he suddenly had this breakthrough and he was like, oh my God, I've spent my entire life thinking I was stupid and I never was, all because that one moment. And, I, and it, it made me like burst into tears thinking that someone so spent 65 years believing something about themselves that, is not even true. And so when we are re, re kind of reprogramming our mind, reprogramming the going back to your first question, the beliefs about ourselves, it's an ongoing process. And obviously, if you can afford, you know, therapists and stuff like that, that's helpful. But 
you know, even if you, you can't, it, you know, they're expensive. Like there is just, there is so much information out there whereby I think storytelling, listening to stories is, is you're choosing the information. I think, I think we forget that information also should be a part of the, the diet we consciously intake. You know, for example, we all talk about, you know, what sort of food diet we live on, but what information diet are you living in? You know, are you listening to things like your podcasts that are able to stretch your perspective? It's all, and the whole book is about learning to be a flexible thinker. How can you stretch your viewpoint of the world? And the only way it can be stretched is A, through new data, facing your fears, doing things that are out your comfort zone and really challenging the, the ways that you're interpreting a situation. And so I, I really like to encourage people, there is no right and wrong. So when you sit there in an, in an argument being quite stubborn, be like, no, I'm right. As you know, the brain, 11 pieces of information can only process 50. There may be information that we're missing. So no one can be that confident if they're right or wrong. So when we're able to say, hmm, that's interesting, and rather than jumping to conclusions and go, I'm going to look for more information. I'm going to wait for the next 50 pieces of information to come in. And then I'm going to make a decision a bit later. I think we give ourselves the ability to have incredible reprogramming abilities. And you talk about this in the, in the book about f- like flex, flexible thinking. Yes. That someone was talking about having, it's almost like elastic thinking that your mind can be an elastic and not being set in the ways. And I think especially people that tend to suffer from anxiety or OCD or stress, they think in this all or nothing thinking instead of the, like we said at the beginning, like thoughts are not facts and how to, what do you think is the best way to stay in the flexible kind of thinking? Like, yes, be on a mindful diet for your mind, which is such a great concept because no one really talks about that, where if you eat junk all day, you're not going to feel well. So if you're just looking at junk all day or listening to what's junk all day, your mind isn't going to do well either, really. A hundred percent. And that's why I, I generally am I'm a, I'm such a consumer of podcasts myself because, you know, it's like having the most interesting friends ever <laughs> because, you know, I can listen to a podcast and I'm like, oh, I feel like I've, you know, I feel like I've had dinner with Oprah today. Oh, do you know what I mean? I get to have, I basically get to have dinner with you like every single week. I can listen to your podcast. And, um, and, you know, sometimes we don't have people in our environment that stretch our thinking. We don't, we actually have people in an environment that make us stiffer. We have people in our environment that kind of trigger us or remind us of things that, you know, keep us stuck in past patterns mm-hmm. and past belief systems. So actually creating a new group of friends, and it may be just virtual friends, like I podcast hosts that can have interesting conversations, I think is, it has been absolutely revolutionary for for me personally anyway um but to your question how do we stay stretchy well that's why I created the flex method because I created four steps to really help myself be flex be flexible in um either like in the moment so I can do it so I can do it reactively or I actually do it proactively like in the morning where I'm not in a particularly stressful or anxious situation I'm just remember reminding myself of the four steps it means that you know I think I, um, Dr. Rick Hansen is a wonderful author um, of hardwiring happiness along with many other books and he always says kind of mind training is what you do off the field uh, so you know the moves when you're in the game and it is it's like you know suddenly you're at work and somebody sends you 
a bitchy email rather than flying off, you know, your hooks. You're like, I've trained for this. I know what to do. I'm going to take a pause. I'm going to challenge, you know, I'm going to get curious. I'm going to choose to be compassionate right now. And I'm going to commit to taking um, action with my values. So the, so the flex is uh, step one is connection. Step two is curiosity, choice and commitment. And um, should I quickly run through that? Would, would that be helpful? I think that'd be helpful. Yeah. I mean, I wrote down too that I, I need to buy this book, the upward spiral. But yeah, that would, and even if you want to explain to like, I thought this word and I was like, is this a real word? And neuroplasticity, like that was very interesting to me as well. Oh. But yeah, if you want to run through those points, I think that's helpful. So the Upward Spiral was this book that I, one of the first books when I had kind of hit this chronic burnout, I thought to myself, things need to change. I'm, I'm like, I'm, and I think everybody gets to that point in life. You're just exhausted of life being hell. And mm -hmm. you're like, right, how do I, I don't want more of the same. I don't want to be living out Einstein's definition, definition of reality, doing the same thing, expecting a different result because, you know, I'm sure we've all been in the situations and- Wait, definition of insanity, you mean? Yeah, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing, expecting a different result. Yeah. And I, and I was just was so tired of- like being stuck in this, why does this always happen to me? Why do things yeah. always go wrong? Like, why am I so stressed? Why am I missing out on this? Why, 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 why? In that kind of stuck and that victim mentality. And I do believe the greatest route of change is through learning, is like educating yourself. Like again, to your first question, taking time to actually understand how your psyche got created. Like what are the core beliefs driving that inner critic? What are the fear? What are your worst fears? Because then you can identify like which ones are, you know, telling you lies. Um, but learning the actual, how your brain works, the science of your brain was so liberating to me. And um, I got to talk about neuroplasticity and this idea that our brain is like plastic. Our brain is moldable at any age and again you know 25 years ago everybody used to think that the brain became hardened and actually neuroplasticity shows that we often we over identify ourselves with an emotion so I used to be the sort of person that would be like well I'm just an anxious person I'm just a stressed out person and actually right. nobody is an anxious person everyone is just maybe experiencing anxiety but emotions are always temporary and we have a lot of agency in how we you know how we look after our mind we have more control um, than we think we do so learning about neuroplasticity is just a fancy word to say your brain is like plastic and can change any age and with that really goes back to like one of your other questions which is like well, that's why we can always stay flexible because biologically we are wired to be flexible always. And, um, and just knowing that is, it was like a breath of freedom to me because I generally thought I was going to live a life constantly with anxiety and you really don't need to, to be, which I thought was the best thing ever. Um, and then the flex. So the flex is based on four steps. One is connection. And this is, accepting how you feel whenever you feel it because what happened to me is that I would I've always been someone who's had really intense emotions so you know if I'm anxious I'm really anxious or even if I'm angry I'm like really angry or I'm you know well you're and, a cancer um, aren't you pardon 
are you a, you're a cancer. Yeah, right? I'm a cancer. Yeah, that, that's very, one of my best friends is a cancer and they're, you guys are, you're very sensitive, emotional. You know, everything is like a hundred, <laughs> like all the time. <laughs> oh I mean, God, I love so him, true. but like I've learned, I've learned how to deal with cancers. Yes, I'm it's such not a bad a, thing. We're so loving. We are so deeply loyal, but we are so emotional. I, when anyone tells me they're a cancer, I just want to give them a hug because yeah. experience in the world can be just like- And you're very my, visual. I found most of the cancers I know are very visually oriented. Yes, it's, yes. I think it's, I think it's, 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 I love astrology to actually help as a framework to understand yourself um, because- even just learning, learning those things about yourself. It gave me so much more reassurance that I was okay and I wasn't crazy. Um, but, you know, sometimes when we feel a certain way, especially if it's an uncomfortable emotion, we will immediately try to like numb how we're feeling. And so we'll immediately jump into, well, I'm just going to go online and like pretend I don't feel like that. Or I'm going to. Yeah. I like um, online shop. Exactly. Or some people drink, some people smoke, like it just depends. Yeah, exactly. Or I'm going to work out really hard, really excessively not to feel that certain way. Um, but, but what we do is we suppress the emotion that's only, we only make it worse. We our emotional center only becomes more active, activated when we try to ignore how we feel. And so that's why I started, that's why, where my addiction to work came from when I felt an uncomfortable emotion, like I'm not enough. I felt insecure. I was like, well, I'm just going to work really, really, really hard. And, um, and, and we block ourselves off from any sort of wisdom of our intuition. We only receive wisdom when we slow down and accept the waves of emotion. And Dr. Joan Rosenberg wrote this amazing book called 90 Seconds to a Life You Love. And, in, and basically research shows that we experience emotions in 90, seconds, 90 second waves. So if you can wow. just connect to your emotion for 90 seconds, you're able to allow it to pass and you're able to then have greater ability to activate the computer side of your brain and actually like speak to your wise part of your brain. So a great, um, a great technique to help your emotions pass and just connect and accept them is through a, a diffusion technique from acceptance commitment therapy. And so you say something like today, my mind feels stressed out. Today, you're reminding yourself that emotions are always temporary. My mind, you are not your emotion. You, you separate yourself. And then you label the emotion because research proves when you label your emotion, you start to decrease the emotion's impact. And then with the connection step, it's all about upgrading that connection with yourself. Because when we're discombobulated and experiencing all the feels, often well, you know, we're sitting at our desk trying to do all our emails, um, and it feels like you just can't shake off how you're feeling. So I always say, try not to think your way out of a problem, move your way out of a problem. So when you're feeling any sort of kind of uncomfortable emotion, rather than trying to ignore it, um, suppress it, or just kind of just sit, just like not do anything with it, go for a walk or move your body, belly breathe, dance for five minutes, go for a run, whatever it is, like move that energy because all emotions are as energy move the energy around your body and then as einstein said you can't you know solve a problem with the same thinking that created it so you create a new energy for yourself to then process however whatever you're going through and i know you're familiar with dr brewer 
Yes. He was on uh, the podcast two weeks ago and I'm obsessed with him. I'm obsessed with his, that book, Unwinding Anxiety. And, and I've been doing his app and he talks about like being curious, how if you're curious about something, it can really sort of take you out of that, you know, this emotional charged way of thinking of what you're talking about, which then can be detrimental to what's going on. Yeah. And so my curiosity inspiration was Byron Katie. Are you, are you familiar with her? No, well, I remember you talking about it, but I'm not that familiar. So, so you so know, Byron tell Katie us. Katie wrote this book called Loving What Is, and she has these four questions called The Work, and they are the most ultimate, golden, curious questions to ask yourself. And so I'll go through it right now. So let's say I'm getting really, really worried that everybody listening to this hates me. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> okay, let me ask the questions. Let's connect with that. Today, my mind feels really insecure. And now let's get, let's, let's get curious about how I'm feeling. Is this true? Well, yes, I do think it's true. I do think they hate me. I've been useless. Can I know 100% for sure this is true, that they hate me? Well, I, no, I don't know 100% sure because obviously I can't tell what everyone's thinking inside. So no, I don't know it's 100% sure it's true. <laughs> how does this thought make me feel? Well, very anxious, insecure, my worst self, um, no energy. Uh, who would I be without this thought? Like happy, confident, feeling good. And suddenly as Byron Katie like, explains, usually our suffering is within our thoughts that are not even true. So we beat ourselves up continuously about making things mean something they may not mean. Like they haven't texted me back. Oh, it's because they think this, they think this, they think this assumption, our yes. inner critics, like, oh, they just don't even like you that much. That's why I'm like a pro at doing that. Yeah. And we create a story, we create a narrative based on our past hurts on something that is meaningless. As, as Shakespeare said, there's nothing good or bad, just thinking makes it so. And so curiosity allows us to go, huh, let's look at some holes in this story. Let's look at if this is even true and actually say to ourselves, interesting, I want to find out more before I decide how I feel about this. And just in that moment, we grant ourselves so much freedom away from being stuck in thought traps our ego like sets for us. No, that's, I, I think not actually... My partner, this Ali, I feel like she talks about her all the time. It's the four things like to ask your, and that's a good way of framing it. Cause sometimes if you've ever done CBT therapy, you know, cognitive behavioral yeah. thought, like it's sometimes there's so many things or so many lists where I feel like the way um, she puts this, it's very simple, like a, an easier way to actually apply it to everyday life. And it's helpful to take you out of it. Yes. Yes. To take you out of it. And there's loads of there's loads of different techniques. And I guess this is why I'm so, this is why when I created the, you know, the flex method to help me, I wanted to take all the best bits from all the different therapies. Like, you know, the connection step is really from acceptance commitment therapy. The curiosity is really kind of looking into the CBT. And then we move into to the choice step. And I think it's really important to remind yourself that I have a choice on how I respond. I have a choice 
to be compassionate. And we may not have a choice in how we feel. Things outside of us, life is challenging. Life can really throw us a shit show. And, you know, sometimes we don't have a choice whether whether to be happy because it's not a happy situation. But we always have a choice if we want to be kind to ourselves. We always have a choice to treat ourselves with self-compassion and forgiveness and say, oh, I choose to forgive myself. I choose to not be stuck in that past shame, regret, guilt. I choose to treat myself like I would a friend right now and ask myself questions like, what would I tell a friend experiencing what I am now? I can choose that for myself. And I think- Choosing the way we're gonna react. Yes, and choosing how we treat ourselves because even if we're trying to react in the best way, we completely forget the fact that we we don't treat ourselves like a as we would a friend. We're mean to ourselves. Like, oh, you screwed up. You screwed up. Even if we're trying to create the perfect response, we don't do it in a kind way. We beat ourselves, expecting that we're going to perform better. I'm like a pro at that. Oh, the mind. You know, like when you, you, I think you say that in the book. You're like my mind like ruined it for me. And I think our minds that can be our own worst enemies. Like the, my mind has ruined so many things for me where you should have been celebrating yourself or celebrating like you were talking about like speaking at Harvard and instead your mind is like, why are you here? You're an imposter, you know, which isn't yeah. true. Yeah. And it can be so really like a horrible way to live. Okay. So we end every interview with you with five questions. What do you do for a mental break? For a mental break, I dance for five minutes to my favorite song and probably do a happiness workout on the Happy Not Perfect app. Okay. Oh, that's cool. You have a ha- you guys have happiness workouts on the app? Yeah. Or, or you guys, meaning you. When is the last time you cried? Oh, God. Um, probably last week. <laughs> I cry all the time uh, because... Um, I, to be honest, through all the work I've done, I think crying is one of the best things that we can do for ourselves. There's so many health benefits to crying. So I think I just cried because I was a bit overwhelmed with, you know, the book coming out and feeling very like almost kind of, you know, I was sharing diary entries and I'm sharing like my soul with the world. So I think I was just feeling like quite over emotional about that. No, that's normal. I mean, I cried last night. So you're acting like, oh, it was last week. I'm like, I feel like I'm crying every day. What are you currently reading? I'm currently reading The Color Purple. What is the best and worst advice you've been given? The best advice I've ever been given is what is meant for you will not pass you by. Um, Because I think sometimes we can get so concerned that we're like missing out on things And actually, we all have the most wonderful divine path in front of us and everything is unfolding perfectly. And I think it's so easy to forget that. The worst advice I've ever been given is to work harder. Because... That's good, yeah. I think that harder is not necessarily better. And sometimes we, again, like Instagram quantifies, you know, popularity. You can't quantify good work. Sometimes you do your best work in two minutes because you've had that brilliant idea. And usually when you're relaxed and taking a break, but I think that the, the worst advice was just constantly being told, we'll just work hard and work hard and you're going to get more done. You don't, you burn out and you do bad work. That's actually, 
So that's, it's good you mentioned Instagram. What Instagram account do you find uplifting? Because obviously there's so much on Instagram you can look at that is really putting you, bringing you down. Is there an account that you tend to visit where after you've, you know, viewed it or read something, you're like, oh, I feel better. I weigh, I love Jamila Jamil's I weigh account. Mm. Um, because that whole thing of this idea of like, what do you weigh? Like we don't weigh our weight, you know, we weigh so many wonderful qualities um, about ourselves. Um, and so I love I weigh. Um, I also love um, notes from strangers, is it? Or Yes, or we're not really strangers. We're not really yeah, strangers. Yeah. I yeah. think the, the founder of that account was just so, I have hats off to her, really. What a brilliant account that she created. And, and to be honest, I am a, I've become a real Pinterester. I love surfing Pinterest because I find that the discovery element of that is really fun. And I love when people put kind of advice into different graphics and stuff like that. So I've become more of a Pinterester. I love Pinterest. All right. Well, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. Shouts out to Poppy Jamie for joining me. We are so thrilled to have you. Um, where can our listeners find you? Like all your handles and apps and all that. You can find me at Poppy Jamie um, on Instagram or Twitter. And if you read the book, then I would just love to hear any thoughts that you have, uh, anything that resonates. Um, and you can find the book Happy Not Perfect at any kind of bookstore you, you can think of. And, um, and so, yes, I just, and, and then you, and then the Happy Not Perfect app is obviously just where you find apps, but as said, always, always uh, lovely to hear from anyone. Good to know. Um, that's all, folks. Be sure to subscribe to Ben Better HBU. Thank you for tuning in to Ben Better. How about you? To learn more, please visit benbetterhbu.com and check out our Instagram, bbhbu. Slide into our DMs with your questions and or comments. Also, be sure to subscribe for your weekly prescription. This pharmacy is open 24-7.